You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As I said, my name is Joe. I'm a covenant member of Connection Church, and I get to also serve as a gospel community leader. Uh, my wife, Abby, and my daughter, Eva, are here also. Um, if, you, if you know them, that's the, the best thing there is to know about me, so that's, you're already ahead. Um, and I'm not a pastor here. I'm not on staff, and, uh, and I don't get to preach regularly, but I do aspire to get to be able to teach and to preach God's Word. Um, it's something I, I enjoy getting better at and, and, tra- and, and practicing, so... Um, Today, you are blessing me with an opportunity to get to do that, so I want to thank you for that. Um, We, as a church, have been walking through the book of Matthew. It's in the New Testament. If you want to make your way there, we're going to be in chapter 21 today. As Pastor Jonathan has said in previous weeks, these last few chapters of Matthew kind of go into slow motion. It slows down. There's several chapters that that detail the occurrences of only one week, the last week of Jesus' life. And so things get serious. Things get hard and and even hard to stomach. There's a lot of of, um, thick things to chew on in this this, uh, section that we're going to study today. And my hope is that when digging into it, um, you won't be tempted to think that this is a testament to how a young guy like me can put a lot of study and effort into a passage and, and be able to grab some, some uh, attention and, and muster up enough energy to be able to preach, but that this would actually be a testament to the fact that God's Word the Bible, he's given it to us. He's given it to you. He's given it to all people to be studied, to be reflected on. He's given it to the average Joe, if you will. And on behalf of Joes everywhere, we don't like being the poster child for mediocrity, but that's uh, not in my notes. Um, this is, is God's plan to get his word into the hands and the hearts of all people. Um, so it's meant to keep you awake at night and give you unrest when life seems good and you've been neglecting God's word. And it's meant to give you a deep and rejuvenating rest when nothing is right in the world. And uh, we're meant to cling to his word. So I hope that's what you glean from this morning in our time together. So as I said, we're going to uh, study and read Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 18 and go to uh, verse 32. So let's read that now. This is detailing the actions of Jesus. So when it says he, we're talking about Jesus. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? 
And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But after... He changed his mind and went. And he went to another son and said, to the same, and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of, the, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And we believe this is God's word, and it's meant to convict us and transform us. And that's my hope for this morning. So these three sections that we, that we just read through form, when you look at them in isolation, sort of a sandwich, if you will, an illustration sandwich. The fig tree story, which is a true story, it's not a parable, but it kind of serves as a parable of sorts, an illustration for us. There's the fig tree, and then the chief priests encounter Jesus, and then another illustration, a parable spoken by Jesus. And so in that we see, we can learn from it when we picture it as sort of a sandwich. What is it, what is it telling us? It goes together. There's the fruit versus no fruit. Then the chief priests encounter Jesus. And then obedience versus not obedient. Jesus' teaching and addressing the chief priests continues. So we'll see next week that this isn't exclusively like a sandwich. But for the section we're studying today, it is helpful to understand when we look at it that way. The fig tree says it has fruit, then it doesn't. Then the chief priests ask Jesus a question and he stumps them. And then one son says that he uh, won't obey, then he does. And then another son says, I will obey, then he doesn't. That's sort of the framework that we're looking at today. So the stories of Jesus, we're going to start by looking at the fig tree. The stories and the teachings, they get harder as we go. This is the end of Jesus' time on earth, and um, 
And the teachings and the stories, they, they get harder. They cut deeper. They're more profound and, and convicting. He cleansed the temple we saw last week by overturning tables and making room for the sick. And we start to see a more dire picture of his life and his, and his teaching and why he came. And what he does with the fig tree is no exception. It's a potent picture. Don't be mistaken, if you read it and it, it gave this picture of because this tree was fruitless when Jesus was going to it and it looked like it would have fruit then it wasn't, he cursed it because it was fruitless. You're absolutely right. Maybe you need to see God's righteous indignation and wrath poured out on the tree and take seriously the power and authority of God. And everything that he does is righteous. Maybe you need to see his undeserved grace in that he poured it out on a tree, not on his people, as a warning. Although this is a literal and true story of something that actually happened, it acts as a parable for us, like I said. The fig tree with lush leaves like the second sun in the next illustration, promises fruit, but it bears none. And as a result, it's cursed. One commentarian said it this way, he said, those who profess to be God's people but live unfruitful lives are warned. We should absolutely see this as a warning. Keep in mind that the ministry of Jesus is bridging the history and heritage of the Israelites, the Jews, as the people of God, with the future promise and fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, his life, death, and resurrection, which redefines the people of God. So this is a story that, is, that helps connect what makes the people of God, historically speaking, which is their heritage, their name, with the future, what Jesus' work is, is changing about the definition of the people of God not those who have a particular name or heritage, but those who bear fruit as the defining feature. So if the defining feature of uh, what makes the people of God, the people of God, is that they bear fruit, and when a tree promises fruit and then does not have any and it's cursed, Jesus pours out a, a you know, wrathful curse on this tree because it doesn't bear fruit, if that starts to jostle you, get your attention, make you feel a little uneasy, then you're hearing it right. You're reading it right. It should. Now, hear what comes next, because the dis disciples see Jesus do this, and they see his power displayed when he, he instantly withers the, the fig tree, and, and they think, that's cool. Can we do that? We want to do that. And Jesus says, you can do so much more. But it's important how he talks about this. See the difference between Jesus and his disciples. He has righteous indignation and the power to curse the tree. And he gives his disciples, us, the power, faith to move mountains, to bear fruit and be a tree that's not cursed. It's easy, easy to be just like the disciples and be distracted by the magic trick, right? And I want to learn how to do that trick. And Jesus says, this type of power is what I'm giving you is far greater, is far better. 
And a helpful way even to see this illustration is to see it compared to, it's kind of the other side of the coin of earlier when Jesus was teaching and he, and he, and he used the illustration of a mustard seed for, as an example for faith. That if we have faith, faith even the size of a mustard seed, which is to say you don't need much. It only takes faith. The point is not the cool things that we can do if we have enough faith. The point is that it only takes faith. It only takes faith. So if you felt a tingle of fear when you connected Jesus' destruction of the fig tree with our own call to be fruitful, hear Jesus' reassurance with faith no bigger than a mustard seed. You can not only have power over this fig tree, but the ability to move mountains and certainly to bear fruit. So moving on, Jesus' authority is questioned by the chief priests. Partly because that's their job. Uh, So in that time, it would have been fairly common practice that the chief priests, the the religious leaders, would have questioned or or affirmed uh, anyone who was teaching. If someone was teaching, they would reference who they're quoting or, or who maybe set them up as uh, teachers who, who, they, who they studied under. And, and the religious leaders of the time would have sort of enforced that or, or assured that what was being taught came from legitimate uh, sources. What they don't realize is Jesus is the creator of the universe, and, and there, there is no um, credential that can, that can be tapped other than what Jesus had. And so we see when they go to do that, how Jesus responds, they raised the question of Jesus' authority, and how he responds, he raised the question of their competence to judge such an issue. So One thing we want to do before we see the bigger picture here is we want to dig in and we want to learn from the chief priests and the elders here. We want to learn from what happened. They were not handicapped by their position or their intellectual ability or anything other than their own pride. They had the opportunity to talk to and hear from the creator of the universe and the savior of the world, but instead their pride and their fear of people got in the way and they kept them from really meeting Jesus. They asked a question with an agenda in mind. Their downfall is their pride and the fear of men. They refuse to answer when Jesus asks them, what is John's baptism ministry from? Is it from heaven or from man? They refuse to say from heaven because that would admit that they're wrong. Their, their teachings are wrong, that they're, they're not, uh, their practices and their teachings are, are wrong. And they're prideful. They don't, they don't want to do that. And they also refuse to say that the John's baptism ministry is from man because they, as it says, fear the crowd and what might happen to them. They lack, as a result, they lack both humility and conviction. If they were confident in their belief, they wouldn't fear the crowd. And if they were humble to be taught something new, they would have been having a conversation with the creator of the universe and the savior of the world. That's not the main point of this section, but we don't want to miss it. If your own pride and thinking this is the way it is, 
is influencing Jesus and his teaching rather than the other way around, then you're missing it. And if your fear of the crowd and what people around you think is influencing your convictions and faith, then you're also missing it. Mechanically speaking, that's what happened. But Jesus is compassionate and merciful, not only to the blind and the tax collector and the prostitute, as we see, but even to the chief priests and Pharisees. Maybe you didn't see it the first time you read it, but I want to point it out. Jesus actually answered their question. They asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And did you see his answer was hiding in there? He wasn't, Jesus wasn't just playing chess to outsmart them. He answered their question by bringing up John the Baptist and what John the Baptist did. John's whole ministry pointed to Jesus specifically as the Messiah. So they would have had their answer if they weren't caught up in their own pride and fear of people. John's ministry was to point the way to the kingdom, and the king of that kingdom is Jesus. The tax collectors and the prostitutes repented, becoming the first to enter into the new kingdom, while the chief priests and the Pharisees did not, and still had not at this time. In this way, John pointed to Jesus and the kingdom's superior righteousness, but the religious leaders did not believe John's witness, even after seeing society's vilest vilest sinners repenting and believing in him and his message. Knowing that, I begin to wonder if possibly the chief priests and the Pharisees rejected John's and Jesus' teaching because they saw the vilest of sinners and the worst of sinners repenting when they should have been astonished and moved Seeing their repentance, they became indignant because it implied two things. The first thing that it implied is that their way was not the way. The chief priest's way was not the way. There was a different way, repentance. And the second thing it implied is that they needed to repent also. So there's an interconnected significance of what Jesus challenged the chief priests with. I don't believe he was merely intending to stump them, and I don't believe he was even merely intending to answer their question, and he did both of those things. But he also paved a path to seeing something greater, as he often did. According to John's ministry, this is what he shows us, which was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Those who repented and believed in the one he was teaching about would get baptized. And in baptism in this sense, and this is a practice that we still uphold, is that they, those who repented and believed, um, would come and John the Baptist would administer this practice of dipping them into the water, submerging them into the water, and then bringing them back out, which symbolizes a, a spiritual cleansing, a repentance. It was the first act. And if you've been with us the last several weeks, then you've seen that practice happen here. And not only was the intention of John's ministry important to Jesus, but also this practice of baptism was also important to Jesus. And we know that for two reasons. The first reason is that Jesus himself was baptized. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, he himself was baptized. He participated in that practice. And the second reason we know that baptism, the practice of baptism, is important to Jesus 
is because Jesus commanded that ministry to continue as part of his final instructions as he was leaving the earth. He gave the work of, of the kingdom to his disciples, and he said, this is Matthew chapter 28, which we'll read in several weeks, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptism becomes a part of the picture of repentance and spiritual cleansing that happens to those who go to follow Jesus. And I just want to point out the contrast that we see here between the first followers, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, that Jesus names, going into the river where John was preaching and getting into the mud and the cold water and being dunked under the water. And in so doing, they participated in a symbol of spiritual cleansing and renewal, a rebirth into the new kingdom. So contrast that picture with that of the chief priests. Now, I'm not certain what the chief priest looked like in this time. I think there's enough documentation we can find out, but I just want you to use your imagination for a second. I say chief priests in this story, and who comes to mind? What do, you, what do you picture when it comes to mind? Do you think they were wearing nice clothes? I bet they were. Do you think they were, and they, they walked with some air of importance? I bet they did. And do you think they spoke eloquently and with with diction i bet they did i bet they sounded important and there we start to see the distinction between those who really got jesus and his call to repentance the real way to the to the new kingdom versus those who thought they already knew the way John and Jesus are saying everyone needs to repent and be baptized. And Jesus makes this clear when he, when he said that the tax collectors and prostitutes entered the kingdom before the chief priests. The way into the kingdom is not proud, importance, or intellect. The way to the kingdom is repentance, a confession of sin, and a deep need for spiritual cleansing. And a true belief in that sends us running into the muddy, cold river water where Jesus is welcoming us into the kingdom. Repentance acknowledges our deep need for saving and cleansing that is outside our own ability to administer, which is why it's represented in the practice of baptism. And this is something the chief priests were not willing to admit. They did not give an answer. In fact, this offensive truth that everyone needs to be baptized and repent is what eventually led these religious leaders to conspire against and murder Jesus in order to try to shut that idea up. So before we continue on in the story, I don't want to miss a direct application here. Baptism is commanded by Jesus in this way. And it's linked with repentance and faith, a rebirth into God's kingdom. And I don't want to start any fights. That's part of Jesus' work, not mine. 
but I do want to give appropriate attention to this and not trying to iron out and, and, and answer all of the, the questions about baptism, but just to say this. John called sinners to repent and believe in Jesus, and their first step in repentance was to be baptized. And Jesus extends that same work, that continued work, to us. He says, keep doing that. So be baptized, if you haven't already. Be baptized. If you came to your senses, changed your mind, heard the good news of Jesus, and have repented, or if you're doing that now, maybe that's happening now, be baptized. Welcome to the new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus is king and we do things his way. Even if it's been a while since you first repented and started following Jesus, if you haven't been baptized, don't miss out. Jesus made this act our participation in his redemptive work for a reason. There's a reason he did it. So all of this, the exchange with, uh, between Jesus and the chief priests, shows us that not only is Jesus abundantly smart, which he is, he is also abundantly wise, and after they reply with no answer, he continues to speak to them and reveals he is abundantly merciful too. Let's look now to see what Jesus says to the, to the chief priests. He introduces this parable of the two sons. The father comes to the first son and he says, go work in the vineyard. And the first son says, no. And then he does. And the first thing I want to point out about that is not only does that seem, maybe that sounds a little bit controversial uh, to us now when there's probably, you know, you've heard, if you're a parent, you've heard your child say no more than once. But especially in that time, getting a no from the, the child speaking to the father who just gave them a command uh, would have been especially uh, inappropriate unexpected to say the least to the the chief priests and the pharisees listening um, they wouldn't have expected the the first son to say no and then he changed his mind so the father says to the first son work in the vineyard the first son says no then he changes his mind and he does the work and then he goes to the second son and he says the same exact thing and the second son i will do it and then he doesn't so this parable goes hard especially for our culture and I want you to apply it to our culture now. What sort of things do you learn from that? We're living in a post-Christian nation of sorts, but we're also in the Midwest. We have generations of cultural Christianity. Those of us who, have call, who would call ourselves Christians in the room can, most of us at least, probably um, speak to generations of, of some connection with a, a, a Christian church or, or something like that. And those of us in the room who, who wouldn't call, if, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you probably have had, at least in your lifetime, if not generations before you, um, a lot of contact with, with uh, Christianity to some extent. And those... Uh, that, that connection with uh, Christianity that, that can often store baggage um, 
to put it bluntly, I think the way that this parable speaks to our context specifically is this. It's most likely that you are or at risk of being like one of the chief priests or Pharisees or the second son in the story. Jesus, his question, which one did the will, when he asks the chief priest, which son did the will of the father, um, it reveals an unmistakable black and white reality of obedience. There's grayer area in word, in, in response, obviously, um, but obedience is a black and white issue, as we see here. The tree has fruit or it does not. The son did the will of the father or he did not. But he said he did. Second son, he said, I will do it. Then he didn't. So as a church, we should be terrified of a culture in which it's most acceptable to have the right answer. We shouldn't merely celebrate the right answer for fear of becoming like the second son, as many of us have done. We should celebrate repentance, admitting I was wrong and I changed my mind. I want to obey now. That's the church. I don't know about you, but I was, I was born and bred in, in the church in a history of Christianity. I, I'm the son of a pastor. I don't, I don't remember a Sunday that I wasn't in a church service. So this is easy for me. I learned how to hide in plain sight. I, I learned how to have the right answer, even if the truth in my heart didn't line up with that. But the church, the people of God, are those who are bearing fruit. And those who are bearing fruit are those who are obeying. And those who are obeying are those who have repented, who have said, I was wrong. I changed my mind. I want to obey now. That's the culture. As a church, we should celebrate. That should become regular. So don't be mistaken that neither of these young men was true to themselves. Their words and their actions didn't line up. There's a danger in creating a habit of making promises with your lips and failing to fulfill them with your feet and hands. Often because those around you uh, might not even know. So I challenge you, maybe this would be controversial, start with aligning your word and your heart with your action. If, if you find yourself in a, in a place like the second son of, of saying the right thing, of having the right answer and doing something, um, something different, I, I challenge you, even if it seems controversial, start by aligning your word with where your heart and your actions are and let, let the conviction uh, of Jesus' words, because um, we see with the, the first son, his honesty became the fertile ground for his obedience. Even though the honesty itself was taboo, it wasn't, it wasn't appropriate, it didn't seem right. Others would have thought, wow, this, this guy's son doesn't, um, you know, is, 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 a, is, a bad, is a bad dude. He doesn't, he's not obedient. Um, start with honesty, because that's the fertile ground for obedience. So for us as a church, likely the biggest challenge the church in our context has faced and will continue to face is not religious persecution, but religion itself. A place where the right answer is celebrated, 
and we begin to give excuses and hide the truth of our actions in our hearts, saying the right things and being blind to each other's and our own disobedience. So I, I want to commend you to, to think on this, to become aware of the acceptable sins of our establishment. And what I mean by that is where is it easiest to get away with something that is not pleasing to God? What types of things do we use each other, even here in the church, to, to excuse or hide sin? In what ways is it, is it easiest to be unloving to God and unloving to people around us in our context? Is it self-righteousness, having the right answers or doing the right things and thinking we're better because of that? Is it being perpetually sulky and somber and joyless? Is it exalting smart quips and gotchas? Is it gossip and talking about people without love and highlighting their sin and using words to describe them as a project rather than a person? Is it cultivating an exclusive culture by using superior insider language? Is it an unhealthy or selfish habit or practice that you found a click within even the church here that it, it feels safe to and comfortable to sin against God in that particular way? This list could go on and on and on, and so I invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you where it needs convicting and apply this to yourself. And I invite you to be most discontent and appalled by the sins of your tendency rather than the sins of the other people. So now let's look at Jesus' abundant mercy that I referenced earlier. When talking to the chief priests, he reveals that he is abundantly smart and abundantly wise, and I want to convince you also that he is abundantly merciful because in a way, the parable of the two sons seems to continue for us. The parable had its own beginning and end. But uh, it, it implies that it continues for us as we read it now. The chief priests and the Pharisees are like the second son in the parable. The, the first son is like the tax collectors and the prostitutes, as he, as he names the tax collectors and prostitutes are the token first son. They have already, according to the parable, been in disobedience, and they changed their mind and then obeyed, thus ushering them into the kingdom before the chief priests. He says, before the chief priests. He doesn't say, so the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who have already repented are in the kingdom and the door is shut. He says, they've gone into the kingdom even before you. What does that imply? So now the chief priests are faced with a new opportunity that extends past the obvious confines of the parable. The parable continues in a way now for us where the tax collectors and prostitutes have already repented and turned to obedience. The chief priests are now given an opportunity to repent themselves. Jesus has held up a mirror to them. He's shown them this is what you're doing, both in the parable and he does so directly in verse 32. And we'll see even more in the coming weeks. So see Jesus' abundant mercy here. 
this is, there's still hope for us. There's still hope for the chief priests. See the gift. Those who opposed Jesus, those who went on to conspire to kill him, he offered a second and third hand to repent. And that offer still extends to you. It still extends to us. And in that way, we see more clearly the link between belief, repentance, and obedience. The fig tree was cursed, not merely because it didn't bear fruit, but because it claimed that it did first. The first son could not obey without first changing his mind. He repented, and then he obeyed. The second son stands dangerously close to being cursed, like the fig tree, but is now offered a chance to repent. See how there is not one example of an obedient or fruitful thing in this whole story that didn't first repent. In each of these examples, obedience doesn't exist where there hasn't first been repentance. So if you're like the first son, if you, if you can identify more with the first son, if you haven't repented yet, repent. And if you have, tell your story of how and why you changed your mind and repented. Keep telling your story of how Jesus forgave you and how he saved you and cleansed you, adopted you into a new kingdom. Keep obeying. If you're like the second son, I extend this to you. Romans 2, starting in verse 4, says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you don't repent, you're on your own, like the fig tree. Repent and hear the words of Jesus at the right hand of God saying, I died for this one. This one is adopted by my blood into our family. See his kindness here. See Jesus' second invitation to repentance. See that Jesus' mercy continues. Because the parable of the two sons is not the parable of the saved and the damned. It's a parable of those who have repented and those who are invited to now. So I, I've kind of addressed, if you identify with the first son, if you identify with the second one, I, I have two cents I want to offer. If you're a ministry leader, a GC leader, a Kids Connection teacher, if you've been following Christ, making disciples for a long time, I want to extend this encouragement to you. If you've gotten used to working in our culture, in our context, where there are many, many, many second sons and many, many, many chief priests and Pharisees, I want you to soak in the patience and mercy of Jesus here. Extend the same potent and yet merciful invitation for repentance to the people you come into contact with. Don't become like the chief priests and, and let your righteous indignation turn into self-righteous indignation. After all, how much pride did the tax collector and the prostitutes have in the part they played in getting to the kingdom of heaven? How much pride do you have? Probably none, because they had to repent. repent. Repentance is a pride killer. And did you not also have to repent to follow Jesus? That frees us to, with joy and humility, extend the same potent yet merciful 
invitation to those in our context who have not repented yet. So now, I want to draw our attention once more to, I think, a missing piece of the puzzle that we see in the story of the fig tree, and I want to end on this. Let's talk about the fig tree again. Jesus could have done anything to that fig tree, right? This is listed among one of a a countable number of uh, miracles that Jesus performed during his time on earth. I'm sure there were many more, but this one is listed among them. It's remembered. Some significance to that. He could have set this tree on fire and kept it from burning, like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, or with the burning bush that Moses encountered to show that everyone around him is in the presence of God. But he didn't. He could have caused it to immediately sprout the most amazing fruit anyone had ever tasted, a full tree of figs, just like he did with the water that he turned into wine at the wedding, or when he filled the nets with fish in Simon's boat to show that he brings forth abundant life. But that's not the miracle he chose to perform on the fig tree. He caused it to instantly wither. The destruction of the fig tree is a tame foreshadowing for those who do not repent, who do not obey, who do not bear fruit. But that's not all it is. Not only does this this withered fig tree serve as a warning, it serves as a sign. Ask this. If the destruction of the withered tree is what is owed the disobedient and fruitless people, how can Jesus possibly still offer a chance for repentance? What is magical about repentance, simply turning from our ways and following Jesus in the way of righteousness instead, how is that enough for us to escape the wrath of God if that is what is owed fruitless and disobedient people? Is the fig tree an empty threat to force like fake obedience, like a parent might say, if you don't obey, I'll... No, this fig tree is a warning of the, of the truthfulness of the righteous wrath of God that is due those who do not obey. But it's also a sign. Repentance is an option for us, not because God became weak in his standards or went back on his word. Repentance is an option for us because Jesus became like that fig tree, Jesus took on the wrath of God, and, he, and only he did it in our place. He didn't deserve that because he bore perfect fruit, but he took it on in our place. Jesus was instantly withered for our fruitlessness, not as a warning, as a substitute. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins, and by his wounds we are healed. And in so doing, He became not only the example, how to obey, but also the substitute, fruitful and obedient in our place. So our obedience is not a response to a threat or a harsh warning. Our obedience is a response to mercy, to grace. The fig tree is not only a warning, but is a sign for us because Jesus is not only the perfect example, but the perfect substitute. 
Our perspective of the brutality of the image of the withering fig tree and what it represents changes when we see that, right? When we see Jesus, what Jesus has done. He warned us of the destruction that would befall all who disobey, all who don't bear fruit. Then he jumped in, became that withering tree for us in our place so that we might have life. And that's the love, that's the kindness that Paul says ought to lead us to repentance. So I invite you to do that now as we pray. God, we thank you for this warning. We thank you for not leaving us to our own and simply destroying us like the fig tree when we deserved it. But we thank you for extending this warning to us. God, we also thank you for extending this sign to us, this sign that points us to Jesus to see that while we were sinners, while we were fruitless, Christ died for us. He jumped in our place. He took on that punishment for us. And so hearing that, we ask that you would convict us. You would draw us to repentance. If we're like the second son, Lord, thank you for that second, third, fourth option, opportunity, invitation to repent. God, would you work in our hearts now to soften us Lord, if we're hiding, if we're running, if we're pretending, if we're excusing, Lord, would you grip us with the amazing work of Jesus and what he's done? Would you help us to see that he took it all for us? Would you help us to see that he counted for our sin so we're not left to have to deal with it ourselves? He paid for it. Would that lead us to repentance now? Would we become a community of people who are more excited about saying, I was wrong, I changed my mind, I want to obey now, and welcoming each other in like the first son? Lord, would your kindness lead us to repentance? Would repentance lead us to obedience and obedience because of Jesus, lead to fruitful lives. It's in your name that we pray, and thank you. Amen.